kids, head to the kids' table, pre-K, four through third grade. Everybody else, take your Bibles. Turn to Micah chapter 3. I didn't get any of my stuff situated up here before, before the service, so I'm having to do it all now. Micah chapter 3, we are finishing up our uh, quarterly, quarter length, our quarter, in four of the minor prophets. Last one we're looking at is Micah. Uh, we are continuing this theme of God's constant pursuit, uh, the promise of salvation that we have in, the, in Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah. And we end up here in Micah today for the, the rest of the month of November. Our memory verse, let's see, did I put it in there? There we go. Yeah, turn to Micah 3, that's where we're going to be. All right, uh, let's see what we can do. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 8. It's kind of weak, but I'll... Next week, you'll, you'll do better, I'm sure. Uh, maybe I'm just getting hard of hearing. Maybe that's it. Hey, you got your cheat sheet, don't forget. Micah, chapter 3. Yeah, as Etta said, this isn't a very hopeful chapter. There is hope in Micah. Our memory verse is a verse of hope. But this chapter that we're going to spend time in today, he doesn't really get to the hope. It is all about a failure of leadership. And he hammers three different groups, and we're going to look at all that. Micah, just to give you a little background, is a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah. He prophesied at the same time, though he was younger than the two of them. Um, he, he was toward the tail end of their ministries. He prophesied somewhere around 730 B.C. to 690 B.C. We know he prophesied before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel and Samaria to the kingdom of Assyria, and then he prophesied for a good time after that. He was from Judah, uh, and his prophecies tend that direction. Uh, at this point, he is probably only talking to Judah. This sermon probably came after the fall of Israel, even though uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel, even though he mentions Israel, he probably now means the only part of Israel that's left, which is the southern kingdom of Judah. Confused yet? Yeah, well, that's what happens when a civil war happens. Uh, he's uh, telling them, and, and we see that his, his focus was primarily Judah in the names of the kings that he prophesied during. He doesn't mention the first verse of chapter 1 doesn't mention any of the kings uh, up north. He does say regarding Samaria and Jerusalem, but just mentions those four kings in Judah. What is his message? Well, his message is very similar to the rest of the prophets. But Micah seems to be even a little more um, intense in this uh, he is bringing comfort to the afflicted, and he is afflicting 
the comforted. That's what his messages are designed to do. If you are being oppressed, if you are one of the poor, one of the downtrodden, one of the ones that's being taken advantage of that he's going to talk about, he is preaching comfort to you. But if you are one of the ones who, are, uh, who is doing the oppression, being the oppressor, then he is not preaching comfort. He is preaching affliction. Now, of course, as we move through the, the Old Testament uh, the whole thing generally, but specifically when we start talking about uh, the, the kingdoms, kingdom of Israel or the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, uh, when we talk about First, Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, when we're talking about the prophets, we have to remember that the prophets are speaking to a theocracy, or at least what should be a theocracy in theory. They have long since gotten away from theocratic rule. Theocracy means God's the king, and then they have a human king and the priests and the prophets, and they all work together. That's the theory. They haven't been that way, especially the northern kingdom, for a long time, though they still maintain the trappings of theocracy. We have a tendency to want to read the prophets, especially, uh, and say, oh, that applies to the U.S., the U.S. is not a theocracy. This book was not written. Micah was not preaching to our country or really any country that exists today at all. He was preaching to that country, that kingdom. We, the church, uh, are a stranger in a strange land. We're ambassadors whose home is far off. So he's not telling us to be comfortable here. As a matter of fact, the Bible is clear that as believers, as the church, we will be uncomfortable here. We have no home. We have no country. We have no kingdom. So what's the point of the prophets for the church today? Well, when we go to the prophets, we, we learn much. Generally, though, we learn about God. We learn what matters to him what's important to him, what, what he says do and don't do. We read the prophets, we read of the unjust leaders, we read of them taking advantage of people, we take in bribes, and we see that God does not like that. We learn about him, we learn about people. We learn what's wrong with us. We fit into these groups somehow. Uh, as sinners, we, we commit these sins just like they do. We, we go to the prophets, we go to the Old Testament, and we learn uh, principles for living as individuals. This is how you should be. God judges a nation because the people don't live right. Therefore, we should live right. We go to the prophets, we go to the Old Testament to see how the church should live as God's people. Because we, and, and whether you're your theology is covenant or replacement, and I don't even know what all those things mean. I just know that when the New Testament talks about the people of God, or rather when the Old Testament talks about the people of God, they're talking about Israel and Judah, the Jews. And when the New Testament talks about the people of God, they're talking about the church. So however we replace or are like or whatever with Israel and Judah, God is talking to us, the church, when we read the prophets. He's not talking to our government or the government of any country on earth. 
And the last thing we see when we go to the prophets, when we go to the Old Testament, is we see the complete lack of ability of a people to rightly lead, govern, rule themselves. We see the complete lack of ability of a people to follow God without the grace of God. We see the need for a Savior because of the complete depravity of sin. If you want to see depravity of sin, read Judges, especially the last couple of chapters, when it got as bad as it possibly could in, among the people of God. So that's why we go to the Old Testament. That's why we go to the prophets. But we have to go to them correctly and hear what they are saying to us in what they said to them. But we have to be careful. Our main focus this morning, though we're looking at the whole chapter and we're going to read the whole chapter as we uh, work through it, our main focus this morning really is verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe, her priests teach for payment, and her prophets practice divination for silver. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become ruins, and the temple's mountain will be a high thicket. That's our focal passage this morning. Our takeaway, our big idea today is wordy, but I couldn't figure out how to remove any words. The failure of the leadership that God has set up to guide his people to fulfill his will leads directly to a withdrawal of God from their presence and a loss of their usefulness. When the leaders quit leading the church to be the church, God moves out of the church. That may be a simpler way to put it. And if you don't believe Micah, look at what John said to the churches in Revelation. Old and New Testament says the same thing. This is a passage we're in this morning, though. So this is what we are looking at, a failure of leadership. There are three main leaders that... Uh, Micah is talking to. He, he, he mentions leaders sort of generally. He mentions uh, priests in verse 11, and he has an entire section against the prophets as well. He has no section against the priests, but there's plenty in the little fragment of a sentence he uses in verse 11. First thing he says is, uh, the first group he talks to is the, the leaders, the unjust leaders in verses 1 through 4 and verse 9 and 10. Micah said, Then I said, Now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord. The leaders will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. Jump to verse 9. Listen to this, 
leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. You're not generally going to get a positive feeling from a description of leaders who tear off people's skins, strip their flesh from their bones, eat the flesh of my people, break their bones, chop them up. It's a pretty graphic image. And he is talking about the way leaders treat the people. Now, in this case, he is talking about particularly the courts. Remember, he is talking to a theocracy. The courts are supposed to be set up according to God's word, according to how how he set it out when he said, Saul, you're going to be king. Saul said, yeah, I ain't going to be a good one, though. Uh, You're right, you weren't. Um, David, you're going to be king. This is the way it's all set up. And it was just downhill from there. But the, the plan was there, the way they should follow God and, and use his word. And we see it occasionally. We have the good kings. Uh, Josiah finds Deuteronomy, and there's revival in the land when they start doing what? Focusing on God's word and scripture. But generally, they don't function the way they're supposed to. And he says those leaders, those who make decisions, are not just unfaithful. This isn't just incompetence. I I firmly believe God can deal with incompetence. I mean, as a matter of fact, when I am weak, he is strong. We could paraphrase that or change the words up a little bit and say, when I am incompetent, he is competent. But this isn't incompetence. This is evil. They say Uh, They hate good, and they love evil. And that's the kind of leadership that they have. Those who hate good and love evil. So in a theocracy, in Israel and the northern kingdom, in Judah, the southern kingdom, there's no, or not supposed to be, any disconnect between the palace and the temple. They were... I I hesitate to say equal in authority, but that is generally how it should have been. The the, the king would go to the temple to be blessed, to to worship. I mean, it, it was understood that everything was under God. And he gave them a king to lead them politically and the the priests to lead them spiritually. So there's not supposed to be this disconnect, but in this case, at this moment, he is very specifically talking about the kings and the courts. Now, we, 21st century Americans, will quickly want to jump to this and say, see, he's talking about our leadership, our political leadership, our courts. There is very likely... uh, application to civil leaders. Yes, God expects everybody to be humane. God expects everybody to treat everyone else with dignity, to lift up those who are poor and oppressed. We have a responsibility to our neighbors to help them, to, to uh, uh, lift them out of a situation, to protect them from uh, uh, being uh, 
taken advantage of because of their situation in life. Yes, we absolutely have that responsibility. Remember what I said. We come to the Old Testament. We come to the prophets to learn principles for living as individuals. And one of those principles is how we should have a godly government. But in this case, if we are going to try to take the Old Testament, take this prophetic sermon and lay it one-to-one over an institution today, we are not going to lay it over Sulphur's government or Louisiana's government or the U.S.'s government, but we are going to lay it over the church and find where we don't line up. And if we take it that way, then he is speaking to the leaders of the church, not just prophets or priests. He's going to get to the ministers. Right now, he is talking to those of you who are leaders in the church. Lay leadership, we would call them, though in uh, Protestant churches and Baptist churches, we lay leadership isn't really a good word because the gospel, the, the, the New Testament is clear. We're all ministers. We all have a responsibility, but we do have at least some differentiation between who's on staff and who's not. Deacons are leaders. Committees are leaders. Sunday school teachers are leaders. People with no title behind their name at all are leaders in the church. And there is a failure of leadership when their goal and their purpose is for church to be about them and not about everybody else. And you might think, well, Michael, there's just no way that in a church there are people, there are leaders who hate good and love evil, who tear off people's skin. But I bet if you thought hard enough, you go, nope. I've known some people like that. There are churches all over the country that are known as pastor eaters. They go and they're there a year, year and a half, and they just chew the pastor up and spit him out. It happens. Far too often. Where there is no ability for someone new to come into the church because there is a group, it is their church, and it is going to stay their church, and certainly you can come and sit and, and, but that's it, as long as you don't sit in my seat. And you best not try to change anything because this is our church, and if you want a church that, you know, you just go somewhere else. Not everybody in church is saved, y'all. Not everybody whose name is on a roll. Not everyone who has been through the baptismal waters, not everyone who has walked down front and prayed a prayer, I talked about it last week, not everybody in church is saved. And the ones who are tearing others' flesh and breaking their bones, chopping them up, those are the leaders who are part of the demise and downfall of the local church. Micah points out the failure of leaders. He moves on to the failure of priests. Now, as I said, he didn't uh, have a passage on this. Pat, move forward a couple of clicks, please. 
Thank you. Uh, he doesn't have a passage on this. He just has a fragment of a verse. Verse 11. He says, Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Her priests teach for payment. Her priests teach for payment. There are preachers out there who are doing it for money. But I'm fairly certain that generally, uh, and I'm, I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to pat myself on the back here just a second. Um, pretty sure my sermons don't, li- don't sound like I'm worried about getting paid or not. I would, uh, I'd soften the blow occasionally if, if payment were my concern. It can't be. My job, the priest's job, let's go back to Scripture for just a second. The, preach, the, the priest's job was to teach Scripture, to, to perform the acts that allowed the people to come before the presence of God and worship Him. And in this case, they were doing this for payment. Well, the only way to get paid for your teaching is to teach what the people paying you want to hear. That's how you get paid to teach. Unless you have a church and a congregation who want Scripture taught, and, and this is why you check out a pastor before you call him. You listen to sermons. You see, where did he go to seminary? What does he believe? What's he going to teach? How's he going to teach? It's why the New Testament tells you to test everything I say. Examine it. Weigh it with Scripture. That way, if I start veering off, if I start saying things that are kooky and off the wall, then you get to say, hold on. Mm-mm. We don't pay you to teach crazy. We pay you to teach Scripture. Now, If scripture offends you, well, that's a you problem, not a me problem. If scripture convicts you, that's not even a you problem. That is a you goal. That is a you yay. Because scripture is permeating your soul. But it was a failure of the priests that they would teach things that only probably the leaders... Or the, the rich in the cities wanted to hear. Could you avoid the stuff that talks about me being a sinner and only talk about the things that are going to make me feel good? I can't immediately think of any examples uh, of priests doing that, but we can think of a lot of examples of prophets. Just read Jeremiah. And all that he said to the prophets that are around him, y'all, they're lying to you. That is not what God said. And of course, all Jeremiah had to do was go to Scripture. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah, and I talk about this more when we get to prophets, but Jeremiah is going to bring up Micah's sermons a hundred years later. He's going to say something, and actually, if I remember correctly, it's not even Jeremiah that brings it up. It is the people he's talking to go, oh yeah, Micah said the same thing a hundred years ago. Jeremiah 24, I think, Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about that. It may have talked about it in your Sunday school lesson this morning. 
Why? Because they weren't teaching to tickle ears. New Testament tells us that's going to happen, doesn't it? There will be preachers that will be those who teach that just want to make you comfortable, that, that do it for money. Uh, click on the TV. You'll, you'll find them. If you want a whole movie about it, uh, Elmer Gantry, was that in the name of it? Burt Lancaster. It's an old movie, 50s, black and white. All about it. There's a new one with the guy from uh, This Is Us in it. It, it's, it is common, and it is a detriment to the church. It is a failure of the priests that their, that their reputation is to preach so that they can make money, get rich off the gospel, and the world looks at that and says, I really don't want to have anything to do with that, and rightfully so. Paul said whether rich or poor, whether, you know, I get paid for it or not, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm blessed. I get paid to preach scripture. But if I didn't, I'd still do it. It's my calling regardless. Uh, some things I'd have to adjust along the way, but I would still do it. That failure of the priests will lead to a removal of the of, of uh, a withdrawal of God from their presence and a loss of their usefulness. The third group he talks to is the prophets. The failure of prophets in verses 5 through 8. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets, and the daylight will turn black over them. Then the seers will be ashamed and the diviners disappointed. They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God. Micah throws this in about himself. As for me, however, I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. At this point, let me retract what I said earlier about Micah only preaching to Judah at this moment. I believe he is preaching to both kingdoms. Uh, my bad on that. But he says to the prophets... You're leading my people astray. The job of the prophet was to speak for God. We, we have this idea. We think of prophecy as telling the future. And that was a part of it, but that's actually a very minimal part of it. And it's not hard to tell the future to people when the prophet has scripture, Deuteronomy, that says, if my people don't follow me and do what I tell them to do, I'm going to send them into exile. And for the prophet then to stand before the people and say, um, you're not doing what you're supposed to do, therefore God's going to send you to, into exile. That, that doesn't take a degree in prophecy. That takes simple reading of Scripture. Now, God specifically told them how to say it and told them it's going to be, told some of them it would be uh, Babylon and others it would be Assyria. And, and there were details that he sent and, and, and gave the prophets to tell the people. And there's more to it. But still, it's not 
necessarily and not even usually about telling the future. It is speaking for God, speaking up for what is right. A prophet, Scripture tells us, is never welcome in his own town. Nobody wants to hear the local prophet. Nobody wants to hear the, the bad news. And that's generally what prophets do. Not always. But prophets rarely show up when things are going great. They tend to show up when things are bad. To tell the truth. To tell what God is saying. The prophets are the ones who are willing to speak what is unpopular. But the prophets at this time were only saying what was popular, popular and benefited them. Verse 5, they lead my people astray. They proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. It's, it's just more payment. As long as you're feeding the prophet, everything's fine, mm, and this steak is good. Mm, no, I think it's great here. Oh, you can't pay me? Your life's going to be miserable. Who could the, the, the best payment gets the best future told. The most money, the nicest meal, gets what they want to hear. The judgment against them is that it will be like night for you. No visions. Their ability to tell what God was saying the ability to see the future, to know what was coming, would all be taken away. They'll look, at some point, they will actually look for an answer from God, and they won't get it. Because he will have withdrawn himself. There will be no word from the Lord. As a matter of fact, we see that after Malachi in the Old Testament. Malachi, about the last prophet that speaks up, and for 400 years, there is no more prophecy in Israel until John the Baptist comes along. God quit talking to the people. Oh, they still had scripture, but there were no prophets. There was no speaking from God. And it was a failure of these prophets, a failure of the leadership to lead the way they should, a failure of the priests to teach Scripture and the failure of, a failure of the prophets to stand up for what is right and to say what was unpopular even if it was unpopular. But finally, there's a failure of God's people. The end of verse 11 to verse 12 says, yet they lean on the Lord, saying, isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins. And the temple's mountain will be a high thicket. The leaders, the priests, the prophets were all supposed to be God's people. So this heading really covers them but this verse makes clear the responsibility of many. And the truth is, 
no matter how faithful any one, two, or even a few thousand people were, it is still resulting in God's withdrawal from his people. Originally, I had failure of the faith instead of failure of God's people on this, on this heading, but I didn't, want to, I didn't want it to be confusing. I didn't like the, oh, the faith fails. Not the faith, their faith. The people failed. We're left with the impression in Israel and, and Judah, <clears throat> uh, an impression similar to what Abraham uh, encountered in Sodom. The whole, well, what if they're 50? What if they're 30? What if they're 20? What if they're 10? And he couldn't find ten when the time came. His own family didn't even make up the, the, the ten he was looking for. That's the, the feeling we get here from Israel and Judah is that there just aren't that many there. Yet they claim God's favor. Why? Because they're Israel and Judah. They, they are the chosen people. At this time in, in the history, especially since it is before the fall of Samaria, uh, if it's in around 730 or so, if it's the very beginning of his prophetic ministry, then Samaria, Israel, the northern kingdom, they're doing well financially. Right? Go back and read uh, uh, Amos. He talks about the, how wealthy they are. Southern Kingdom is doing fine financially. Everything seems to be good. And there's this sense that, well, we got all the money we need. Everything must be great. God must be blessing us. They claim God's favor. Isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. And the general population believed it. Those who were being oppressed didn't, remember? Micah is here to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. And they say, well, we're fine. And they're not fine. Yeah, budget was being met, and they had a surplus, and there were, looked like a bunch of people in the room, but they weren't fine. There was rot and cancer in the temple, in the halls of leadership, in among the priests, in among the prophets. And therefore, there was an end coming. And so, Israel is going to lose all of its influence. Let's go back just a little bit to, okay, a long way, Genesis chapter 12. When God told Abraham what he would be, I'm going to make you a nation, and that, through that nation, all nations will be blessed. That's a prophecy of Jesus. But it's also a command of their responsibility. I've told you before, Israel was to be a missionary people. And yet, over time, they grew more and more insular, and they wanted to keep everybody out and keep God to themselves. Well, eventually, 
they kept God out too. Because their focus was not him, but them. They were supposed to influence their community, their world, and they didn't. That which is supposed to influence and convert a community or a culture loses all ability to reach it when God leaves. And God left. God withdrew. He showed back up in a manger as a baby. That's going to be a while, though. A church that becomes insular and only looks at the culture as something that must be kept out at all costs and not a mission field that must be reached at all costs. A church that becomes insular and says, all we need is comfort, the right amount of money, the right amount of people, and we'll be fine. That church loses its ability to reach the community because God will eventually leave that church. It's interesting that we uh, that this passage comes election week. Um, I don't know if they knew this. Curriculum's planned about three years in advance. I don't know if they did that on purpose or not. But here we sit. And we're, we look to our elected leaders to do things for us. And we, as the church, look to elected leaders to enact laws to stop the things that are immoral and wrong. We want bans on abortion, rightfully so. We look at the culture this direction and that direction and we say, this needs to stop. And when we have those uh, prerogatives and those priorities in a constitutional republic uh, uh, that sort of, the, the, of the sort that we live in. But we aren't to look to the rest of the world, to the lost world, to the world outside of our walls like Democrats or Republicans. We aren't to look like the Kiwanis Club or a country club. We're not supposed to look like any political party or any government institution. That's not our job. That's not our calling. We are ambassadors. We're messengers. We don't belong to the world here. We are empowered with a message. By the message, with the message, to take the message to the rest of the world. And if that means we're in a country that has generally um, uh, culturally Christian leadership, a civic religion that makes it easier for us to function as a church, which we're very thankful for, Veterans Day this week, we get to meet, we get to proselytize, we get to do all these things because of veterans that stood up for our rights and many gave their lives for them, for our Bill of Rights, our Constitution, the freedoms that we have. But we are no less called to share the message, to be an influential uh, gospel-bearing group 
whether we live in America or China or South Sudan or North Korea, we have the same responsibility. We're supposed to look like the church. Doing the work of the church. Telling people about the Savior and Creator of the church that called the church to be His hands and feet. Our leaders should have that as their focus. Our priests our teachers should have that as their focus. Our prophets should have that as our focus. Our people should have that as our focus. And if we don't, we have lost the focus. And the failure of the leadership, the priests, prophets that God has set up to guide his people to fulfill his will leads directly to a withdrawal of God from their presence and a loss of their usefulness. If you have ever felt God's just not there. God's just not using me. God's just not here. God's just not using us. Then my question is, has God left? If he has, we left first. Because we didn't focus on the right thing. Oh, Michael, you are such a downer. Well, it's Micah, not Michael. And yeah, he is. But prophets tell what isn't popular. Isn't easy to hear. But every prophet had hope. Mike is going to take a little while to get there. He's, eh, it's not going to take long, actually. In chapter 4, he's going to get to it. There's hope. There's a turnaround. There's a change possible. But leaders need to quit ripping people apart. Teachers have got to teach Scripture. And the prophets need to be willing to speak the truth no matter what. The people need to focus on the mission. And then the church will turn around. What's the mission? Well, the mission is Jesus. Make disciples. Go into the world and make disciples. And that's the world right across the street, a few blocks over, across the country and across the world. We make disciples but it starts right here like I said earlier it, 
in every church, even among church members, there are people who aren't saved. This morning, there are people here that have never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. People watching online, never. Some of you have, have gone through some motions, but your life shows nothing of the fruit of the gospel. As a matter of fact, if, if you examined your life, you'd find you hate good and love evil. You rip the flesh, you break the bones of people. But you can have salvation today. You can begin that discipleship process today with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Our result, the, the, what we earn, what we deserve is death. But God didn't leave it there. God gave us a gift of eternal life and said, you, your, your life doesn't end when you die. I'm going to fix that for you. But it's not a blanket application to all people. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You must respond. The people of Israel had to respond to the message of the prophet and change and repent. The message of Hosea last week when we talked about the sinner's prayer. They had to come with words of repentance and return to the Lord. This morning, you need to come with words of repentance and turn to the Lord. And take your next step. For some of you, it may be salvation. You need to trust Jesus as your Savior today. Others, you want to be baptized, follow in obedience. You need to conform your life to Christ, to get on mission, to stop breaking the bones and ripping the flesh, to stop teaching falsehood, to be willing to stand up and be bold in your faith, be bold in the truth. You need to submit to God's plan and purpose in, for your life and might, might even be, uh, include joining our church. Whatever your decision is this morning, we're going to have a couple of minutes here where we're going to allow you to make that decision. I'll be down front to pray with you. To my right, Chelsea will be over here to the left. A couple of our deacons, probably just one of our deacons this morning, one of them's on vacation, uh, will be in the back to pray with you if you'd like. But this will be our time for you to respond in faith and to say, I want to be different leaving here than I am right now. Now's your opportunity. Let's pray. Father, thank you that through your word you continually call us to repentance. And Lord, your message is a message of hope every time. But sometimes you just lay the wood to us. You just, you just take us to the shed and, well, we just get a, get a big old paddling. But the Lord disciplines whom he loves. So, Lord, we don't despise your discipline. We don't despise the truth of Scripture. We take the truth of Scripture and we compare it to our lives and we say, Lord, make me more like you and less like me. Lord, make our church more like you and less like us. May our focus be you. Not on how awful 
culture is, the world is, the world is going to act like the world. Sinners are going to act like sinners. Lost people are going to act like lost people. The problem is when the church acts like lost people. God, we are called to something higher and greater. And may our leaders and our teachers and our prophets and our people commit to that call. And may we never fail Certainly, Lord, protect us from such regular failure that you withdraw and we lose our usefulness for your work. God, in this time, the next few minutes, I pray that you would work on hearts that we would see you. We would hear from you and we would respond to you. May you do a work in this place by your power and your spirit and your word. not for any other reason or by any other method. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's stand. We're going to sing. If you'd like to pray, have somebody pray with you, or just come up to the front and pray by yourself, you come as the Lord leads this morning.